Let us pray. Father God, week in and week out, we partake of so many things. And yet here for a moment, before Your Word, we have a good portion before us. And so let this encounter through the power of Your Holy Spirit with Your Word help further change us, help further sanctify us, help us further grow in the likeness and love of Jesus Christ. As we come to these final two commandments, Lord, we've realized we are guilty of them all. Every single one of them. And yet, you still passionately pursue us. And so, for a little while, Lord, allow us to be changed by this word so that we more passionately pursue you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. As we have now reached these final two commandments, they are unique in that they deal strongly with our words and our desires. Our words and our desires. You could actually make a sound biblical argument as we read, especially in the first six verses of Genesis chapter 3, that when our first parents fell into sin and allowed this world to fall into a deadly spiritual corruption, and yes, a physical one too, but a, even a more uh, gross violation was that spiritual separation from God, that spiritual death, that it was in the unique breaking of these two commandments that we find ourselves in the mess that we're in in one sense today. Our words and the things that we desire. And as we kind of shift into commandments that really focus on these things, we really shift from the beginning of these commandments and you could argue really the first eight which were easy to understand at first in a... Um, external kind of way at first. So for instance, when we heard do not murder, while well, we eventually looked at it and realized there's an internal reality to murder of anger, we first usually look at that and think of a, you know, a death row inmate. Somebody who has killed. We don't usually think about do not be angry. When we think of do not, do not commit adultery, we think of the fact of the marriage covenant. We don't often think about uh, the perversions and lusts that we might have, whether wed or unwed. <coughs> we think of honor your father and mother. We often look at our own uh, family dynamics and family relationships. And, and I guess one thing I did not make clear when I preached that is um, sometimes with honor, there's only so much a parent will allow us to do. But we don't tend to think about, you know, governmental dynamics of authority or, or even church kinds of authorities that we are to submit to. And yet in our two commandments today, a, a unique shift begins to occur. 
so that by the last commandment, God's asking us boldly and clearly, you want to battle sin in this world? What are your words like? What are your thoughts like? Because there is a heart problem that starts within us that affects the things we both do and say. And, and basically, there is, as Augustine put it, a God-shaped hole in our heart, or, or other theologians have said basically the things we want is broken. And God says we need to look at that if we want to honor Him. What are the things that make us really upset? It's often when we covet something. We desire something. We desire something to play out this way. Or we desire uh, this plan to go this direction. And God sets up those little road construction teams. You know, the, the ones that put out their signs and they give you, you know, a, an alternate route. And in our words and in our thoughts, we succumb in one sense to road rage. And we, we can scream, whether audibly or in our, inside of ourselves, in anger against God. And in anger against neighbor. And in anger against um, those around us. And these two commandments uniquely join together to have us consider these things for a little while. I think there's uh, a way we, we, we forget about the simple reality that the Christian life is a road. This is why we gravitate towards stories like Pilgrim's Progress. There is a journey that we are on, and that journey is to the place and presence of God. Uh, for, the, for the ancient Israelite, of course, they would have those seasons, those times. They were called to march to Jerusalem. We are marching to the heavenly Zion. And yet it's our words and it's often our desires that get us off track, that get us just to slightly steer off course, just even sometimes a small degree and in the fuel of our covetousness, of, of, uh, it, this often stirs us into trouble. Now, when it comes to the first commandment we're looking at today, how is this often remembered? How is it often abbreviated? How do you often, if somebody's giving the short version of this commandment, what are they going to say? Thou shalt not lie. And for 99.99% of the time, that's good Theology. That's good logic. But because I know what will happen two or three times if I don't mention this at the back of the book, uh, at the back of the church, and there are moments in Scripture where there are lies told, and because we want to be people of the book, what is the actual wording of the commandment? Thou shall, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. And that's an important distinction because there's been moments, again, in Scripture, even moments as we started this book in Exodus in chapter 1, where the midwives 
lied to Pharaoh. We have moments, for instance, Rahab in the book of Joshua, where she deceives the, the essentially the culture of her birthright in order to protect the Hebrew spies. Elisha the prophet deceives. David one time in front of the king of Philistine acts like a madman to deceive. There are moments where there are these, oh, I forgot about jail, the patron saint of tent peg spikes. Um, she misled Sisera before putting Invader to death. And so my point is, while for essentially our entire lives, I'd be very doubtful that uh, the definition that we often gravitate towards of thou shalt not lie will not be a sufficient definition in practice in our day-to-day -day lives. Understand that the true wording of this commandment has a love of neighbor at its core, and that love of neighbor, neighbor is one in which we need to protect and to not betray. And so, for instance, while this is kind of speculative, we're about to be in Christmas time and uh, looking at the Advent season, and I think of Matthew, and I think of the, the wise men, and I think of uh, how the slaughter of the innocents in Bethlehem. And the clear, it's clear in the Gospel of Matthew in chapter 2 that Joseph and Mary have now been there for a while. They've been there for a period of time. And so that means that people would have known they just had a baby. People might have even known they went to Egypt. And yet, if somebody had knocked on the door, love of neighbor, not to betray neighbor, they don't have to tell an evil enemy what is going on. And so, uh, but I, I speak in this because kind of like the Kantian ethic is, is often a very popularized in Western culture. Understand that the core of this commandment is of love of neighbor. And you do not love neighbor by betraying them to evil. Uh, hopefully, we never live a day in America where we fall in the patterns of sin that other nations fall into. But if you had told me when I started preaching at this pulpit years and years and years and years ago that Canada would be betraying its citizens who are Christian in the way it's currently doing, I would have never believed it. And so we need to understand that in confrontations with enemy, our love of neighbor and the wisdom that God gives us is one that can allow us to protect neighbor. You don't always have to offer everything. Now let's get into more practical realities with this commandment. The punishment for this commandment in Israel, if you bore false witness against someone, was basically that you received whatever your lie 
would have subjugated the other person to or did subjugate the other person to. So for instance, if you testified and lied at a trial which sentenced somebody to death and you lied on, in your witnessing of that, you would receive the death penalty. Whether or not the lie was found out before the end of the sentence or after the end of the sentence. Why I mention this is this is a sin in which the wisdom of God says we need to be careful to keep it in perspective. And that's a helpful thing for us to understand because as Psalm 116 tells us in verse 11, I believe, all of us are liars. All of us are liars. Actually, I, I think an even more helpful place to go in Scripture is in the book of Numbers, if I can find where I quoted it in my uh, text. Numbers 23, verse 19. And this gets to the heart of the problem of lying within our community and within ourselves. It compares God and his honesty against our dishonesty. And it states, God is not man that he should lie. Basically, in one sense, the Bible's kind of informing us something's wrong with our wiring where we are often prone to lie. And God is not like a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not fulfill it? The reality is, and what the scriptures are getting to, is the fact that in, in our nature, we are prone to lie. We are prone to exaggerate. We're prone to misrepresent. We're prone to all kinds of falsehood. And if you're sitting in the pews and going, I don't do this that much. I don't think lying's a big sin of mine. All right, let's just, let's just for a moment consider a few more mundane lies. Before you install that piece of software, did you read all the terms and conditions? Did you? How about the playground holdover from our youth? Oh, I don't care. I'm not worried about it. When you do really care, <coughs> you are worried about it, and the first thing you're going to do when you get out of that person's midst is you're going to tell everybody that you care and that you can't believe it. How about this one? I'm fine. Now, I know there's no men who will relate to this experience. But if I venture into my house at the end of a, a work day, honey, how was your day? Whether it's good or bad, if she kind of ventures into a story of her day, I know I'm okay, smooth sailing. When do I know I'm in trouble? I'm fine. At least for me, again, no other men I'm sure have had this experience. My heart might skip a beat at that time. What did I do? What did I do? I'm fine. How many times 
Have we lied to people with a fine? Another funny story of this, one of the most surreal conversations I ever had, and my wife was there too with my sister. My sister, I'm about to enjoy uh, Turkey Day with her uh, down in Annapolis. And one time she asked, how are you doing? And we weren't doing that well. And she goes, I, just so you know, I don't know if this is a Protestant thing, but I really don't want to hear about your problems. I'd rather you just lie to me and say you're fine. <laughs> I'll be there in five minutes. I'll be there at this time. I'll get it done by, and I wrote that one down, boy, a lot of things came to mind. I haven't talked to Pastor Mark yet of Advent. Even the innocent LOL on a text message. You always laughed out loud when you sent LOL? In ways both big and small, we have a lying problem. And the biblical reality confirms this as well. It's chock full of huge lies from central characters from Adam and Eve to Abraham who would lie rather than defend the honor of his wife or his son Isaac fell into the same sin. Jacob lied to his father. His wife Rachel lied to her father. And yet I thought of the New Testament and three names come boldly into view. When it comes to lying in the New Testament, and it's Ananias, Sapphira, and Peter. And if you know where Ananias and Sapphira fall in, in Acts chapter 5, and you know Peter's part in that, what the Holy Spirit does to them for their lying to the church we realize quickly this is a sin that God does not take lightly. And yet, like He offered Peter, He offers a full forgiveness to us today for our being comfortable in lying. And why is this sin so uniquely problematic to God? It's uniquely problematic because at our best, us Christians are supposed to be people of our Word. The Word that gives life the word that builds up. It's actually built into the Christian mission itself. In one sense, uh, in those moments where we succumb to not being people of words that build up neighbor and words that defend honor, we have failed as Christian mission missionaries in our own spheres. Don't believe me? Just ask yourself in your mind, what is truth? What is truth? God is truth. His word is truth. Anything that conforms to the mind of God is truth. Now with that in mind, just consider for a moment Philippians chapter 2, verses 14 through 16a. Do, do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent. Children of God without Blemish, and now we get into the motive. In the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, basically, we need to be this way in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. 
among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life. Basically, if we can't do this well, when we fail to do this well, we fail to be lights in the darkness. So we need to really, as these two commandments force us to look at, look at ourselves in word, in thought, and in deed. Because it's built into the Christian mission. And as we see a generation of society that is most certainly crooked and twisted, the word matters starting with God's word. But our words help us to be light shining in this generation. And when our words fail us, we are darkened. It's like one sense, we, we turn off the light. We flip the switch on the flashlight when we've allowed ourselves to speak dishonestly. So serious is the sin of lying that actually at the heart of the word infidelity, while, while often with the word infidelity we might run to marriage, infidelity is actually not being a person of your word. The reason why we run to marriage is because you make the marriage vows in front of many witnesses. But any kind of moment where we fail to be people of the word, it's a moment of infidelity. When I don't honor a promise I've given to my children, when I don't honor a promise I've given to a friend or a family member, I am having a struggle with infidelity. My words do not match my actions. When I do that, I need forgiveness and I need to repent. And I will say when it comes to lying, this is a sin that sometimes it's just so natural to us, we're not going to notice, but when people bring it to our attention, we need to give a verbal apology and commend them for bringing it to us and to our attention. And so in the battle for the ninth commandment, we need to be a people to strive to be truthful, even when it's inconvenient. We need to avoid spreading rumors. Uh, there's, there's a reason why the Bible says it wants a plurality of witnesses. It's not saying that it thinks all witnesses are lying, but we need greater perspective. For instance, when it comes to our own scriptures, Jesus didn't write with the inkwell out the Bible. You know, if you want a religion where one guy kind of controlled the whole thing, go to Mormonism. Go to Islam. Part of the reason why we have a faith in which we probably have about 40 writers for this book is that in the plurality of witnesses of the work of God, we have a greater confidence that this is the true God. We need to fight against this sin. There are a lot of people thinking, uh, probably I'm going to single them out in this, but the reality is, I can just say in pastoral ministry, I don't know of a single week where there isn't some gossip or half-truth. Not full truth, half-truth. That would benefit from more witnesses, a more biblical approach to the ninth commandment, and I'm confessing before you, I often am the worst enemy of the church in this regard. And sometimes it can be you. Sometimes it can. 
We live in a civil society that declares your truth is your truth, my truth is my truth, and that has been led to chaos in the public square, and we have to be better than that. We have to be a people who passionately pursue God's truth. And at some times that's going to take forgiveness and grace for mercy for those who might have betrayed us, and that sometimes that's going to require from us confession of sin. We've got to be a people who really care about our words because words can either bring life as they do in Genesis 1 or words can destroy and lies can destroy as they help to do in Genesis 3. As for the 10th commandment, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet, covet your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. And as I alluded to earlier, this entire commandment is internal. Understand that it's internal. That actually the violation of this commandment is one that we can see the byproducts of, or we act out in the byproducts of, but it started in the heart much earlier. So for example, it's not so much the donkey. It's what we think about the donkey. You know, when the lights pull in with their brand new donkey, and we go out to the parking lot, we go, wow, is that the donkey with four-wheel drive, 4.6-liter 4 bladder? I'd like a donkey like that. Okay, maybe somebody in the church needs to get a donkey. But it's the coveting of the things that we do not have that shows our discontentment with, like our, our lack of contentment with the things that God has not given us or the things that has, God has given us. There could be no covetousness with contentment. They are at enemy and war with one another. You find somebody struggling with this sin, they are struggling with lack of contentment. If you are truly thankful for what God has given you, when we are truly thankful, we are not coveting. By the way, coveting is not the same as aspiring. It's okay to make a five-year plan. It's okay to make a ten-year plan, to be industrious, to set out uh, with a goal. That's okay. That's not coveting. It's when the plan fails, when the road no longer allows you to travel down the way you wanted to, and all of a sudden it says, you know, detour ahead. What's the road rage look like? What does your anger look like in those moments? That's how you find out whether or not you're struggling with coveting in that moment. If the depression sets in when that thing we desired or that thing we wanted or the thing we want back that will not come to us, it's in those moments where God puts a wall before us that we get to see the heart of this sin. This sin uniquely exposes the fact that we seek satisfaction in something other than God with regularity. 
It actually represents a deep spiritual poverty within us. Within us. If at any point in time you are upset and consumed with anger, it's time to check the coveting list. But I wanted it to go this way, not that way. I have a reason because of this. Coveting. Idolatry. As for a big picture understanding of coveting, you want to be able to... Here's a... Here's my poli-sci degree in like two seconds. Want to understand how to understand geopolitics and other nations and other countries and even our own countries? See what that country upholds as good? What it's coveting? What it's aspiring for? And you'll figure out the country. And you'll figure out the core of the country. I remember when I worked with the homeless. And uh, there was the law passed under the Obama administration and every homeless person could get a cell phone. And I didn't have money for a cell phone at that time in my life. Um, but all these homeless men were celebrating the fact that they too could go download all those apps and they too could get on the internet. It was all covered. And they actually had cell phone companies started to find our ministry schedule, set up tables, because I guess they got some sort of a commission for everyone they signed up and tried to interfere with our ministry work um, in, the, in the good name of making sure everybody had a cell phone because we're an American and that means the best of <coughs> Americans has an Android phone or an iPhone and, and, and these sorts of things because that's a real sense of freedom. When we can go on that digital highway anytime we want, when we can scan, when we can swipe, Think of what would happen to advertising, commercials, if no one struggled with the sin of coveting. Whole industries would crash in a moment's notice. But we love coveting. And so, as we watch the pizza commercial, as we watch the food commercial, oh yeah, what do you want? Let's, let's, let's go eat. Why don't we go to that place? Why don't we go to this place? Coveting. It's so ingrained in our lives that we don't even notice it. Because coveting reflects a great internal problem. And the reality of what it reflects for our civil society is that we're a complete mess right now. We're an absolute mess. And maybe that's why a little bit of what Paul said in Philippians earlier that we considered that we need to be a light in the midst of a society like that. I've wondered at times what Job would say to the insanity of our modern struggle with coveting. I mean, Job outside of Christ is unique in all of Scripture in the degree of how the stuff in life even the best of stuff God gives can be taken away from us. And yet Job shows us something remarkable. And I, and I just want to read from chapter 1, verses 12 through 20. And I want you to think about the sin of coveting 
and how he had so many times and opportunities to give in to the sin of coveting because everything tangible, everything uh, in this world that is material that God takes away is an opportunity for us to desire to be our own gods. God, we wanted this way. We wanted this person. We wanted not that person. We wanted this reality, not that reality. And look at how Job in his moment of fiery trial is prepared to not fall into this sin at the worst of it. The Lord said to Satan, very well then, everything he has, being Job, is in your power. But on the man himself do not lay a finger. Then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord one day when Job's sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house. A messenger came to Job and said, the oxen were plowing and the donkeys were grazing nearby. And the Sabaeans attacked and made off with them. They put the servants to the sword, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, The fire of God fell from the heavens and burned up the sheep and the servants, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, The Chaldeans formed three raiding parties and swept down on your camels and made off with them. They put the servants to the sword, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. And while he was still speaking, yet another messenger came and said, Your sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house. When suddenly a mighty wind swept in from the desert and struck the four corners of the house, it collapsed on them. And they are dead. And I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. And this is the last next verse. This is how Job responds. At this, Job got up and tore his robe and shaved his head. Then he fell on the ground in worship and said, Naked I come from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. Job had a contentment with God that didn't need a cell phone or an app where he could lose everything and still worship and praise God. And the sad thing is, is when we have the courage to look honestly at our own lives, do we really have a faith like that? What are the things that when they don't go our way or are taken away or they conflict with other things that make you no longer want to worship God? These kinds of things, while we will make excuses for them, we will give our own inner defense attorney, we will give these things all the greatest defense that we can give, all the justification we can give, they all fall under the sin of covetousness. And the thing is, Christian, no matter how we try, how often we try to struggle to believe this fact, how we rage against uh, this reality and word, thought, and deed, everything, again, temporal in this world, 
all tangible stuff in this world, all the knickknacks, nothing of it is ours. It is God's. This is why some of you might remember if when we were looking at thou shall not steal, the amazing thing about thou shall not be steal is that we have possession, considered possession of anything at all in one sense. Bible-believing Protestants at our best, we have understood this idea that nothing is ours except the time that we've been given. And so the question becomes with coveting and the tangible goods given and the little time we have, what do we do with these things? What do we do with our possessions? What do we do? What do we yearn for? What kind of relationships do we want? What are the most important things we invest our time into? It's not that you can't have hobbies or activities. But again, it's about possession. Do those hobbies and activities own you? Or does God own you? My wife and I, when we were out in Lake Tahoe, we saw this school. And it was right up against Squaw Valley. And if you don't know, um, Squaw Valley was where they hosted an Olympics. And it, it looked like a school for Olympians, basically, to possibly train who wanted to be in the Winter Olympics. And I, I checked it up online, and it looks like, yeah, it's a boarding program, and it allows them to, to really invest in skiing. And I'm sure if I had searched long, longer at the school, I could have found uh, maybe a couple of Olympians that have matriculated from their uh, program. But you know the people I'd rather talk to I was more interested in as I considered this? It was the individual who went to this school in order to have that hope of one day being a fleeting Olympian for a moment who didn't make it. Who desired that in word, thought, and deed that they sacrificed even living in their own parents' household. That they, they went away to school, to boarding school. That they so invested and committed themselves to skiing or snowboarding that, that uh, this was their passion and they did not make it. I'd love to talk to them. I'd love to talk to them because I have found in my own walk and the walk of others that it's in that small window of when we do not get that thing we covet above and beyond God, that things do not work out the way we wanted them to, that the roadway does not travel in the narrow path of righteousness we wanted it to walk in. That amazing things can happen for those who come to the Lord and repent of their desires. See, the thing about coveting is there's one kind of coveting that is never called sinful in Scripture. It's the coveting and desiring of God above all else. And that's what this final commandment wants us to look at. And yet the irony of the final commandment wanting to look at ourselves within and consider this is that brings us back to the first commandment, does it not? In the things in life that we want more than God, outside of God, in those things we covet, we have veered off that narrow path. We have gone down a road in our sinful desires that will not lead us to a good place. 
And we need to be wise in our steps, Christian. We need to remember that it is very easy to get off that narrow path in word and in desire. <coughs> we are called to put God first, and yet as our coveting shows, we have a lot of things that God has to contend with in the matter of our own hearts. He's only given us time. What do we do with the time? He's given us more than time, but in one sense, it's what we do in the time we've been given that we can take with us. As Job said, I was born naked into the world. I'm going to die naked in the world. Blessed be the name of the Lord as He worshiped. And there was a greater Job. We don't depict Christ this way. We don't think of Christ often on the cross this way, but he was allowed to be naked before others, allowed to be bare before others. And he allowed himself to fall into that judgment because he coveted first, obviously, to please the Father, but he also desired us as his bride. God wanted us passionately. Hence, we call it the passion. And so, as we wrestle with that internal battle of the faithful Christian walk, let us go be renewed before the God who allowed Himself to be stripped naked, whose name we can praise and worship so that we could become His possession. Allow more of our desire and the things that we covet and want in this life, allow those to go away so that we might more fully and richly worship Him. Amen? Amen. Let us pray. <coughs> Father God, we desire so many things that make us stumble in this walk, in this life. Help purify our hearts. Continue to renew a right spirit in us. Allow us to covet You, our Lord and Savior, above all else. Let us seek Your face. Let us seek Your goodness above all else. And Lord, when we fail, when we stumble and fall, when it hurts others, let us have the courage to repent. And also let us have the courage to turn <coughs> away from those passions that have caused us to sin at times. Let us be people of better desires and of better words. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now let us take a moment quietly and privately to confess our sins before the Lord. <coughs>